If you could take your Bibles this morning and open them to Psalm 89. I remember when I was a child going on vacation uh, with my family, and we would go to Wyoming to spend a couple of weeks with my grandparents. We'd all pile into the family station wagon, a couple of us boys facing out the back window, and we'd drive a little over a thousand miles from Wisconsin to Casper. And like all children, we'd ask, are we there yet? (laughs) I'm sure it drove my parents nuts. But it wasn't just that we were bored being in the car as we drove across eastern South Dakota, or worse, Nebraska, if you've ever driven driven that. There was nothing to see there, just flat fields for hours on end. It wasn't just boredom in the car that caused us to ask that, though. It was that we were excited to see our grandparents and aunts and uncles and our cousins who lived out west. And as we got close uh, to Casper, we would eagerly look out the front, uh, the windshield of the car, and at every hill that we would come over, we would scan the horizon, hoping to see the fires of the oil refineries, that was the first indication that we were there. And so we were, every time we'd crown a hill and we'd be scanning and looking at the horizon, just waiting because we knew that one of these hills we were going to come up over and all of a sudden we would see the city of Casper. There's something of that anticipation that we need to recapture here. And we need to appreciate. Because the psalmist in Psalm 89 asks some questions of the Lord. Kind of of the, are we there yet variety. And we need to understand how each generation of Israelites felt as they saw another descendant of David arise to take the throne in Jerusalem. They knew the covenant promises of God. The promises that we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Those promises generated a certain anticipation. And that anticipation grew stronger and stronger as the years passed by. Would this new king be the one who was promised to come? Would he be the one to finally bring victory and success? Would he be the one to finally embody the full glory of Yahweh in the midst of his people? And just like we did as children in the car, cresting a hill, excited and then disappointed because it wasn't the the right one yet. In that same way, believing Israelites looked with excitement at the new king, And then suffered disappointment as one by one the descendants of David proved unfaithful, weak, and morally corrupt. And finally when sin had run its course and the kingdom fell, the line of David was cut off from the throne and the people were taken into captivity. The promises of Yahweh had led the people to believe that things would get better. That Israel would grow larger, stronger, wealthier, until finally her king would be exalted above all the kings of the earth. And yet what happened was exactly the opposite. And that's where Psalm 89 really uh, comes into play. Some of the Israelites, no doubt, as they observed this, became discouraged and began to doubt and question whether God would keep His covenant, whether God would be faithful. The psalmist, who's identified here as Ethan the Ezraite, he never doubts God's faithfulness. 
But he has a slightly different response. As I said, it's more along the lines of the are we there yet variety. Last week, we began to study this psalm and we really laid down the theological foundation. Yahweh is the sovereign king over all creation. He controls the angelic realm. He controls the physical world. He controls the rise and fall of nations. Psalm also teaches us that the Lord is righteous and merciful. That His people rejoice to serve Him and to submit to Him as King. And so... We asked last week two questions. We, asked, we posed two questions. We really only considered the first question, which was, is the Lord able to keep his word? And in the opening verses of the psalm, the psalmist makes it very clear that yes, Yahweh is able to keep his word. And the psalmist, as I said, laid a theological foundation but it really is kind of big picture stuff. What is true about God? God is the sovereign Lord over creation. He is the the powerful ruler who lifts up one nation and, 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 and sets down another. And all that is well and good, and it's theologically true. But what we need so often is something more specific. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter that that is true. What I'm saying is that in this moment, in this instance, the psalmist is going to consider this with respect to a specific issue. And so we lay the foundation of theology. God is sovereign. But now we're going to look at a specific Question: What the psalmist is going to do here, really beginning in verse uh, 19, is he's going to begin discussing the, the, the promises of the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. And he's going to look at that covenant in detail and then ask some very pointed questions of God. And so I would like for us to do that with him today. So let's pray, ask the Lord's help, and then we'll begin to study the rest of this psalm. Heavenly Father, it is true that we anticipate the blessings that you've promised in the future. It's also true that sometimes in our anticipation we fail to see those things happening. We, we know what you've promised and we look for the promises and yet sometimes it seems like you are delaying. It seems like nothing is happening. We might be tempted to doubt. We might be tempted to question whether or not you are really faithful. The psalmist doesn't do that here. Help us, Lord, to understand what he does why he does it, and what that means for us today. This is your word, and we need your help to understand it. I pray that you would use me as I speak to be clear in my thinking and my words, that I might point your people to your truth. And I pray that you'd help each one of us today to humbly submit ourselves to the truth, to receive it, to believe, and to obey. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. The psalmist begins, verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. You'll remember that this is the introduction to the psalm. 
I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. We did that last week. But it is important for us to see that in the introduction, the psalmist speaks of the mercies of Yahweh. His, we, we, we said that word means his acts of loyal love, his deeds or works of love. But in addition, he also talks about his faithfulness, which is established in the heavens. And that's why he goes on to spend the next 14 verses talking about God as king over creation. Because his 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 faithfulness in the, the physical world and in the universe around us is proof every day that God is faithful and true in what He says. If He continues to be faithful with respect to the creation, then, the, then by, uh, by analogy we can say He will also be faithful with respect to His people. And so the psalmist makes that connection. But in in the introduction, he also, in verses 3 and 4, gives us a very brief summary of the Davidic covenant. He says to us here that it is a one-way covenant. And what I mean by that, that's not really a technical term. I just mean that Yahweh, the Lord, made this covenant and gave it to David. That the Lord sealed it with an oath. In other words, he swore himself that he would do these things for David and for his descendants. The Lord made these promises and obligated himself. It's kind of a side issue, but I I find fascinating that sometimes people like to say, well, they say it very piously. uh, I don't like to put God in a box. And I agree with that. I don't like to put God in a box either. But when God has put himself in a box, when he has obligated himself by what he has said, then we have reason to believe and expect that he will stay in the box. That he'll do what he said he will do. So when God has made covenants, when he swore himself to David, he bound himself, he obligated himself. That's going to be very important here as we consider the rest of this psalm. And so I don't put God in a box, but he does put himself in a box sometimes. In this case, by swearing an oath, by promising and committing and obligating himself to do certain things according to what he has said. And so what is it that he has promised what is it that he sealed with an oath that he swore to David here in these in verses 3 and 4? Well, verse 4 uh, tells us that his seed will be established and built up his throne to all generations. So the covenant that God made with David deals with David's descendants. But I want to just make one really quick point about this that we need to note. He's not talking about all of David's descendants collectively. He uses a singular term here. The word seed. And he's speaking of a particular descendant of David. His seed, not collectively, but individually. His seed. The singular. Now, why does that matter? One particular descendant whom Yahweh will set up permanently on David's throne. Well, it matters because the New Testament, Galatians 3, for for instance, Paul points out that the Old Testament uses the word seed in the singular. Paul even makes this point. It's singular, not plural. He's speaking there about God's covenant promise to Abraham. And Paul is saying that when God said to Abraham, your seed, singular, what he meant was Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that. The use of the singular seed there, Paul says, is pointing to Jesus Christ. And I think we can make a valid application of that principle to this psalm as well. The promise to David that is the subject of Psalm 89 is the promise of the coming of Messiah. Jesus Christ. The seed I said at the beginning that that, that each generation of Israelites as a new king would rise up from David's line to take the throne would ask that question, is this the one? Because they were looking for 
a seed that God would establish forever. The one, the chosen, the anointed one, the Messiah. Generation after generation comes and a new king rises up and that's the thought in their mind. Is he finally the one that God promised? Now, what does this covenant say? Let's jump ahead to verse 19. Because this covenant says some things about Christ, the seed of David. Look at verse 19. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David with my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall not or shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. The promise here that the psalmist is referring to and speaking of and focusing on, beginning there in verse 19... Really, he, he starts with David and then kind of looks ahead. So he, he starts with David. And, and what does he say here? Verse 20, uh, 19 to 23, this first section talks about how the Lord helped David, how he strengthened him and he exalted him from among the people. Now, this is interesting. Remember that David didn't come from a royal family. Saul was the king when David was born. And David didn't come from an important city. He was from the small village of Bethlehem. And he wasn't even the oldest one in his family. He was the youngest of seven brothers. Yet Yahweh found him and anointed him with holy oil, he says in verse 20. And in so doing, the Lord sided with David. This was the gracious work of God. You ever wonder about that? David was just a a boy when Samuel showed up at his father's house and said, the Lord sent me here. I'm looking for one of your sons. And Jesse brings the oldest in and he's good looking and strong and everything. And no, it's not him. And the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. All, All six of the brothers. No, 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 no. And Jesse's going, well, I don't know what to do. And Samuel says, don't you have any more? Well, there's just the runt, the, the, the youngest one. He's out, looking at, he's out watching the sheep. You don't even want to talk to him. It's not worth the time. I mean, I'm, I'm adding, I'm embellishing there a little bit. I don't know that Jesse said all that. What he did say was, well, there, yeah, there's one more, but he's out tending the sheep. And Samuel says, bring him here. I'm going to wait until he's brought in. The Lord sent me to do this. The Lord found David. The Lord called David. The Lord anointed David. Samuel did that day. He poured the anointing oil on David. It was a symbol, a signal that God had chosen David to be the next king. Why? Why David? Well, some people might say because he was a man after God's own heart. But David wasn't. He was a boy who lived out in the fields tending sheep. He's called a man after God's own heart many years later. No, no, God didn't choose David because David was so good. He didn't choose David because David was so spiritual or so mature or, or so uh, filled with faith. No, the Lord chose David because the Lord is gracious. He sought out. And this, this psalm makes it very clear. Again, everything here goes one direction. It all comes from God to David. Notice that, verse 19. I have given help to one who is mighty. Again, that wording of that might be confusing to you. One who is mighty isn't saying that he was already mighty. It's saying he was a warrior. God is the one who gave the help 
to the warrior. God is the one who gave David his strength to fight. Just read the account of David as a boy going to fight Goliath, and you'll hear David very clearly saying, this is not me, this is God. I'm fighting in the name of the Lord. David didn't ever take credit for that. That was God's victory. That's what this passage tells us. I have exalted, I have found with my holy oil, I have anointed with whom my hand, or with, my, with my hand shall be established. My arm shall strengthen. Everything that's done here is God. David didn't earn this. David didn't raise himself up. David didn't, uh, didn't aspire to something great. God chose him. God elevated him. God uh, anointed him. God exalted him. God strengthened All of this is from God. This is a picture of the grace of God. Because it's all of grace. It's nothing of David. It's all God who chose this youngest, insignificant, obscure shepherd boy and said, he's going to be the king. And God made David the king. And so very, very clearly here, he's emphasizing that this is God's doing. Verses 22 and 23. Again, It was God who beat down David's foes, including Saul and Saul's sons, his whole line that that, that would have tried to to stand in the way, not of David's aspirations, but have tried to stand in the way of what God was doing. Again, that's why David, when he had opportunity to kill Saul, could step back and say, I'm not going to do it. Because it's not my aspirations, it's it's not my goals, it's God, and I'll let God take care of it. And David did, and he trusted God to to work it out. And God did. This is the grace of God. He is the one who accomplished all of these things. David never took matters into his own hands. We read through, we've been through now 89 Psalms. We've read Psalm after Psalm after Psalm where David has written and said, I am going to wait on God to do his work. And I'm trusting in you. And we have these Psalms where David refuses to take matters into his own hands, but instead simply trusts the Lord. This is what David was doing. Why? Because he wasn't exalting himself. God was exalting him. And this Psalm makes it very clear. God says, I'm the one who found him. I'm the one who chose him. I'm the one who exalted him. I'm the one who established him. But it's not just David. See, we we would be mistaken if we thought that this Psalm is only talking about David. Because he very clearly speaks of the Messiah. And the promises that he gives here point beyond the life and experience of David. In verse 24, my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. Those two terms come up again here. Remember we talked about that last week. Key words, faithfulness and mercy. And they're repeated here. Why? Why does he repeat them here? Because he's reminding us this is God's doing. God made the covenant. It's up to God to keep his word. He gives David's seed, this one who would come, strength and dominion, exalting his horn there in verse 24. The horn is, speaks of military power, the ability to conquer. He sets God, it's God who sets his hand over the sea and the rivers there in verse 25. Again, some people interpret this as a reference to the boundaries of the promised land. The promised land was bounded by the Mediterranean Sea and the, the, the Euphrates River and, and, uh, and the Nile River and these rivers. But I don't think we can limit it to that scope. David's dominion extended that far, at least in some way. David did exercise some measure of control over the land from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. But... The, the rule of the promised seed, this Messiah, will be much more extensive. We'll make that point here in a minute. What's really important to notice here, and I think it's important in verse 24 to see, he's speaking here about Messiah, about Christ and his rule. And what does he say? He says his hand is going to be over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. And what is this telling us? That his kingdom is a geographical kingdom he has geographical dominion in other words the kingdom of christ is not merely a spiritual kingdom 
Now, there are a lot of people today that will say that the kingdom uh, of Christ is, exists today in the hearts of his people. That he's ruling and reigning today as a king in my heart and yours if we're believers. I'm sorry if the way I say that makes it sound like I'm mocking it. The truth of the matter is, I believe this passage and others teach us very clearly that the kingdom of Christ is a geographical kingdom. It's not a spiritual one alone. It's not just, well, He rules in our hearts and that's enough. No, His rule extends over the sea and over the rivers. He will rule and reign on the earth. It's a physical kingdom that includes seas and rivers. Of course, if it's a physical kingdom that includes seas and rivers, then we would say it's a kingdom that has not yet been established. And so it's not appropriate, not right for us to say he's ruling in our hearts today. What we can say is that we belong to his kingdom. We've been given rights to enter his kingdom. And we're waiting for the day when the kingdom is established. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Notice here in the next verses how Christ will speak to Yahweh. Verse 26, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God and the rock of my salvation. (laughs) It's interesting that when Jesus was on earth, He called God His Father. And it was a source of great anger among the Jews. In fact, this week we've been reading in the Gospel of John. And if you've been following along on our reading plan... Uh, and, uh, and, and Jesus, over and over again in, in the book of John, speaks of God as his Father. In fact, we just read this week in John chapter 5 and verse 18, the Jews, it says, sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Of course, The so-called Jehovah's Witnesses have a real problem with this today. They don't believe that Jesus could be equal with Yahweh. They believe that he is the firstborn creation of the Father. They love to go to Colossians 1 and try to argue that Jesus is a created being. And uh, they will use their mistranslation of a verse in Colossians 1 to try to argue that. So don't get, don't get caught up in that with them. But you know what they won't do? They won't come to Psalm 89. They won't. Because the very next verse, verse 26, we hear Christ, the Messiah, speaking to God and calling Him His Father. But the very next verse makes it very clear what that means to say that Messiah is the firstborn Verse 27, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. To be the firstborn of Yahweh here means to be the highest, the most exalted among all the kings of the earth. And so again, when Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he's not saying that Christ was the first one created. What he is saying is that Christ is the highest, the most important, the chief above all. And if you just look at the context of Colossians 1, it makes it very plain that in him, that in all things, he, Jesus Christ, might have the preeminence. We can study that in detail some other time. I just think it's interesting that here in Psalm 89, we have this term defined, and I would argue that Paul was thinking of this when he wrote that in Colossians 1. When he said he is the firstborn. Yes, just as God promised, he would make Messiah his firstborn, the chief, the most exalted above all the kings of the earth. That he would be number one. That's what he's saying here. So this is the promise that God made to David. The point here is that the seed of David will rule over and above all of the kings of the earth. 
His dominion will not just be the land that God promised Israel, but that all kingdoms and all nations of the world will be subject to him. He will be the firstborn, the most highly exalted one over all the kings of the earth. And again in verse 8 we see the mercy or the loyal love of God appearing. The emphasis again in that verse 28 that the seed and the throne of David will be established forever. And what does forever mean? Well he clarifies that in verse 29 in the second half. He says his throne as the days of heaven. In other words as long as the heavens will last That's how long his kingdom will last. If God is faithful to maintain and sustain his creation, then he will be faithful to keep his covenant to David and to his seed. This theme is continuing again. If God is trusted to be faithful in his creation, then he will also be faithful to his covenant. And you can see why each successive uh, generation in Israel, as they watched another descendant of David rise to take the throne, you can see why they would ask that question, is this the one? Is he the Messiah finally who's come? As the years, the decades, and the centuries pass, and they continue to ask that question. And each One ends in disappointment as it becomes clear that these men were not the promised seed through whom Yahweh would fulfill His word. But you know, God wasn't surprised at all. God wasn't surprised at all that that David's sons failed. Again, This goes all the way back. God didn't choose David because of David's great spiritual maturity, his faithfulness. What do we know about David? Well, we know that at the height of David's career, he committed acts of unbelievable unfaithfulness, right? Adultery, murder, lying, deceit. That David did that. God wasn't surprised. God wasn't surprised that David failed to raise his sons the way he ought to. God wasn't surprised at Absalom and Amnon and the sons of David that were so corrupt. That didn't surprise God. God wasn't surprised when Solomon, who was such a wise man, had his heart turned away from the Lord by all of the foreign wives that he took and their false gods. God wasn't surprised as each generation following that proved to be sinful and corrupt and weak and failing. (laughs) How do I know God wasn't surprised? Look at verse 30. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, If they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. God anticipated their failure. But notice what he says. By the way, that's only the first part of the sentence. That's just the if part. He hasn't got to the then part. That's the next verse, verse 33. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Even in the covenant that God made with David, he built in a mechanism for dealing with David's unfaithful and disobedient sons. This obviously isn't talking about Jesus Christ. He was sinless and perfect. He never failed. 
But all of David's sons, all of David's descendants, beginning with Solomon and ending with the fall of Jerusalem, all of them were guilty. And not just ending with the fall of Jerusalem, but that's where we're at with the psalm. Obviously, all of David's earthly descendants were guilty of forsaking God's law, not keeping his commandments. And so there are some who would suggest that because of the sin and the failure of the Israelites as a nation and David's descendants in particular, that God set them aside. That this covenant was somehow broken. Is that true? Would the disobedience of David's sons put the covenant in jeopardy? If they proved unworthy, would Yahweh set aside David's house just like he set aside Saul's? Remember what God did to Saul. Saul had sons who could take the throne. God said, Saul, no, no, I'm removing you from being king and it will not be one of your descendants. I'm giving it to someone else. Couldn't God have done that with David? The answer to that is no. Again, God obligated himself. I'm not putting God in this box. I'm not telling God what he can and can't do. I'm simply saying God says what he will and won't do. And that can be believed. He says here, what will he do if David's sons disobey? He will discipline them. He will punish them with the rod and with stripes. And that doesn't sound appealing at all. But that's what he says he's going to do to David's sons. Right? He's going to punish them. But in the very next verse, in verse 33, he makes it very clear. He states it categorically that he will not take away his loving kindness. That word loving kindness is the same exact word that we've seen over and over. Mercies, chesed, it's his loyal love. He will not remove his love. He will not allow his faithfulness to fail. That word faithfulness shows up again here as well. See this. He's repeating these themes from the beginning. Is God loving? Is God faithful? Even when David's sons fail, even when, when humans, uh, humanly speaking, we see nothing but failure and unworthiness, is God going to be unfaithful? And the answer is no. David's sons can be spiritual failures. Frankly, most of them were. And yet God's covenant will not change. Why? Because all the way back from the very beginning we said this. God's covenant never depended on David. It never depended on David's sons to keep it or make it valid. Yahweh swore to David. He is the one who entered into covenant and gave his word. We said there were two questions. The first was, is he able to keep his word? The second is, is he willing to keep his word? And the answer to that question is also in the affirmative. Yahweh is willing to keep his word. This point is made very clearly here in this section. He emphasizes it about as strongly as possible, beginning in verse 33, going all the way down to verse 37. He just drives this point home with a hammer. He will not break his covenant. Got it. He won't break his covenant. He won't go back on his word. But maybe he'll change it. Right? Maybe he won't, he won't give up on David. Maybe he'll just redefine it or make a few adjustments. Nope. He says here in verse 34 that he will not alter in any way the words that he has spoken. That which he has promised will come to pass in the way that he said it. He will not change it. The covenant with David is sacred. It cannot be broken. It cannot be changed. And here's the thing. Notice what he says there uh, in, uh, in verse 35. Once I have sworn by my 
holiness. When God swore this oath, on what does he base his oath? He says, I swore on my holiness. What does that mean? It means that if God doesn't do what he's promised, then God's holiness is forfeit. The holiness of God, that which is at the very heart of who God is, His holiness is what separates Him from everyone and everything else. It is what makes Him uniquely God. If He is not holy, He is not God. And He says, this promise is connected to my holiness. It rests on it. If the promise fails, then my holiness goes out the window. And so he says, just like the sun and just like the moon, which are established by God to remain in the sky, David's seed and his throne will remain forever. Now, all of that is well and good. But what would prompt the reaction that we read next from the psalmist, verse 38? But you have cast off and abhorred You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in the battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. How long, Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Salah. Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. As I said last week, this psalm and these questions that the psalmist makes are toward the end of the psalm, in the minds of some are scandalous. How can he speak to God this way? How can he ask these kinds of questions? Well, I think the issue that's in the mind of the psalmist here is not, it's not an issue of punishment. Again, the covenant itself contained a promise of punishment. If they sin, then I will punish them. I will punish them with the rod and with stripes, he says. He makes that very clear. So the psalmist is not surprised or objecting to punishment. But what has happened, at least from the perspective of the psalmist, goes way beyond punishing just the disobedient kings. He says that Yahweh has cast off. He is abhorred. He has seemingly renounced his covenant. That was something he said he would never do. And he has cast down the royal crown of David to the ground. I think probably he's talking here about the captivity in Babylon. The cutting off of the throne of Israel. It's as if God has taken the royal crown, that symbol of power and majesty, and has thrown it down into the dirt and treated it with contempt. What's more, the impact of Yahweh's fury has been felt by more than just the king. And that's something else here that the psalmist kind of points to. Verse 40, he talks about the hedges that have been broken down. Uh, And then he also talks about the strongholds. These are the, the fortified cities in Israel. And, and it's that, that all of this is that God hasn't just punished the kings of Israel, but as all the land of Israel has suffered because of God's wrath and His judgment. All of the people, the psalmist in, in, in himself is included, they have all been made vulnerable to attack. 
Because their shield, the king who belongs to the Lord, has been removed. He uses the, the image of a hedge here, and I think that's an interesting image. It's helpful. What's the purpose of a hedge? Well, a hedge is a, a large row of, of bushes, I suppose, that grow kind of together, grow into one another, and they form a wall that really is virtually impenetrable. And they used to grow them around their vineyards. They would plant a hedge around the outside of the vineyard, and it was intended to keep out wild animals or, uh, or, or, or thieves, people who would come in uh, and, uh, and, and destroy or steal uh, from your vineyard. And uh, what happens, though, when the hedge is removed? What happens if that hedge is broken down? Well, the vineyard then becomes completely exposed. Anyone, everyone who wants to come in can take what they want. Wild beasts can come in, they can trample down the vines. They can destroy any hope of a, of a decent crop. And really, that's what the psalmist is saying has happened to Israel. It's as if God has taken the hedge that he had planted and has broken it down, made them completely vulnerable so that anybody who wants to can come in and can attack and can take advantage of them. As the king has become weak, his glory has ceased, his enemies then have risen up to plunder his people and and, and he has no no ability to protect them. This is the, the situation here that the psalmist decries. And in the final analysis, he speaks even of the very throne in verse 44 that has been cast to the ground. His kingdom has been cast to the ground and covered in shame. And as I said, this all leads the psalmist to ask some very pointed questions. It's good to pray and ask God questions. But the questions we ask and the way that we ask matters. The psalmist is not just taking shots at the Lord here. He's not just venting his anger. He's not accusing God of disloyalty or dishonesty. Again, let's just remember here what we've seen. That the psalmist, along with the rest of the believers in Israel, he accepts without question that Yahweh is the creator and the sovereign Lord. This is the theological foundation. God is in control. That goes without saying. That is the foundation of all of it. He also accepts the very promises of God, the promises of this covenant, as the very word of God. So he recognizes that God, not only does God have the the rule and the authority over everything, but God has made promises. He has entered into a covenant. And he recognizes this. And his question is, when will God finally fulfill what he has promised? Why is he delaying? That's why he asks, how long? Verse 46. We've encountered this how long question in several of the Psalms already. And it's a question that assumes that the Lord is in control. He's not saying, God, you've blown it, or God, you can't do it. What he's saying is, I believe that you're going to do it. I just want to know when's it going to happen. How much longer do we have to wait? There's no doubt in the psalmist's mind that God has the authority and the power to keep his covenant, to send the Messiah, to restore everything. He just wants to know how much longer is he going to have to wait. That's why he turns his attention to the shortness of life. Verses 47 and 48, he talks there about how brief life is, how short it is. That everyone experiences this brief life followed by death. And the reason that he turns his mind to that is that his life is fast approaching the end. And he wants to know, is Messiah going to come before I'm gone? He longs to see these works of love that God has done in the past. That's what he refers to. He wants to see, verse 49, the former loving kindnesses. I want to see the things you did before. I want to see them in my lifetime. 
Imagine living your entire life waiting for the coming of Messiah and going to the grave without ever seeing it. Of course, Hebrews 11 uh, tells us that generation after generation of Old Testament believers experienced this. Hebrews 11 says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And the psalmist here, even as he waits the coming of Messiah, endures the mocking and the scorn of unbelievers. That's what he speaks there in the last verses, verses 50 and 51, about the reproach of your servants. He's saying that, that, that these unbelievers have reproached, they have, they have put to shame men and women who are continuing to believe the promises. They're mocking and making fun of those who have the faith to believe that God really will do what He said. There were apparently those in Israel, certainly there were many among Israel's enemies, who laughed at the idea that God would ever send His Messiah to rule on David's throne and exercise dominion over the whole earth. Very similar, by the way, to what Peter says. He he speaks there of scoffers who will come in the last days. And he says, these scoffers, these mockers, what they're going to say is they're going to ask, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So in many ways, we're like the psalmist. We're living in an era where God has made certain promises, promises that He has not yet kept, that He has not yet fulfilled. And we wait for those promises to be fulfilled. And as we wait for them, there are those who will mock, those who will scoff and say, I can't believe you. You would, you would still believe in all that stuff. All that outdated and outmoded stuff. What, why do you still hold on to that stuff? How ridiculous. Peter, writing to Christians in the first century, says essentially the same thing that the psalmist shows us here in the Old Testament. The right response is a response of faith. To believe the promises of God and trust that He's going to keep His word. Get this, even if we live and die without ever seeing it brought to pass. The psalmist, we know that the psalmist who wrote this died without seeing the Messiah's day. He wrote these words. He asked how long. And the answer from God, not recorded in the psalm, but the answer from God was, not in your lifetime. How long? Just a little bit longer. Be patient. But you know, there were some. Think of someone like Simeon. You can read it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Simeon, Luke says he was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's the testimony of Simeon. He was an Old Testament saint, a man like this psalmist. And no doubt, no doubt, Simeon prayed throughout his lifetime, How long, Lord? How long until you send your Messiah? And Simeon was rewarded. That day in the temple when Jesus was eight days old and his parents brought him in to dedicate him and Simeon took the child in his hands and he rejoiced and he gave glory to God because his prayer of how long was answered. And in his case, it was today. Today, he's here. It was fulfilled. Now, As I said, we too have promise from God. I would say in one sense, as far as application from Psalm 89, we have the same promise. The promise of Messiah. The promise 
of this throne of David and the king who will sit on that throne and reign forever, that promise that has not yet been fulfilled. The kingdom that we too wait for. As we groan. Talked about that in Psalm 88 a couple weeks ago. As we grieve over death and the consequences of sin and yet we pray for and hope for and look for the day when Christ will return and establish His kingdom and completely fulfill this promise of the covenant that God made with David. It will be done. But the truth is there's other promises as well. Maybe it's the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You may not see it. How can this be possible? How can God save you, though you're a sinful rebel, if you just believe that God has raised up Jesus from the dead and confess Him as your Lord? No, no matter how difficult it is to see it, know that God is able and willing to keep His promise. The real question is, will you trust His Word? Will you believe Him? Again, maybe it's the promise of His second coming. Jesus said in John 14 to His disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. You may not live to see it. You may live your whole life praying, Lord, how long until you come? And you still may die without ever receiving that promise. But know this, that God is both able and willing to keep His promise. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 4 that those who have died in Christ will not be left out. They will be received into heaven to be in the presence of the Lord. If you've trusted in Christ, He will return for you and receive receive you unto Himself. Maybe it's another promise. Maybe it's the promise of Jesus' words from John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Do you want to bear fruit? Do you feel like you're not? Do you feel like your life is dull and is not, you're not growing, you're not seeing the, the, the fruit and the outworking of God's Spirit in your life? Trust His word. Trust His promise. Jesus said, abide in me. Because he who abides in me bears much fruit. Believe his promise. What about 1 Corinthians 10.13? God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Does it seem like temptation is impossible for you to escape? That, That sin enslaves and binds you and there's no way out? You have the promise of God and his word. That He will enable you to bear temptation and escape the bonds of sin. Will you believe and trust in His Word? Or what about the promise of Hebrews 13 where He says, Of God, He Himself, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Will you believe the promise of God? That if you've received Christ, He will never leave you or forsake you. What He has promised, He is willing and able to. I trust that you'll believe in him and his word today. Let's pray. Lord, we, we see here in Psalm 89 again just a reminder of a man who believed, who trusted in you in spite of what it appeared to his eyes. He trusted that you were good, that you would keep your word, It can be hard sometimes for us to trust you, to believe that you are going to do what you've promised, and yet your word and your covenant has obligated you 
You have bound yourself. You have sworn with an oath to David and you will do these things. We know that you have sent Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to the earth and lived and died as a man and rose again. You have done that. And yet we still wait for his coming to establish the kingdom, for the fulfillment of these promises. Lord, even as we pray, how long? Even as we struggle and grieve with the difficulties and trials of this life, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us to trust in your word and to know that you will keep your word and you will do what you've promised. Help us to trust in it today in Jesus' name. Amen.